Quite frequently, the study of media and communication tends to focus almost entirely, if not exclusively, on the present. However, history brings a very important dimension to understanding not only the past, but also the present and perhaps imagine particular futures. How can the field bring history back into the study of media, communication, culture and technology? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Biela Coleman in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Gabriela Coleman, who is a full professor of anthropology at Harvard University. Biela did her BA at Columbia University in New York in religious studies, and then her master's and her PhD, both in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Chicago, before joining Harvard in anthropology and also at the Bergman Klein Center. She was associate professor and held the Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy in the Department of Art, History and Communication Studies at McGill University in Canada. And before that, she was an assistant professor in the Department of Media, Culture and Communication at New York University. Previously, she had held postdoctoral positions at Rutgers University at the University of Alberta and among other visiting stints. Um, she's been faculty fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the School of Social Sciences at the Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, and also visiting professor at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland, and uh, research, research director at La Fondation uh, Maison de Sciences de l'Homme in Paris, uh, France. She's held um, and received numerous grants from very prestigious organizations, including the National Science Foundation uh, and the Ford Foundation. She is the author of three books, Coding Freedom, which came out with Princeton University Press in 2013, which has translations in Serbian and Chinese, uh, then Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy, the Many Faces of Anonymous, which came out with Verso in 2014 and which received the 2015 Diana Forsyth Prize by the American Anthropological Association. And she's edited together with Jonathan Stern, Derrick Burney and Tamara Tembeck, the participatory condition which came out with University of Minnesota 
Press in 2016. She is uh, the author of many journal articles and book chapters and is arguably the leading expert on the cultures of hacking worldwide. So we're really thrilled to have Biela with us today. Welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, my friend. So tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? The journey started in, in high school. And I had a teacher, Deborah Ferdman, who was our history teacher. And a group of us found out that she had majored in anthropology at Wellesley College. And a number of us were intrigued. We didn't really know what anthropology was, except that it sounded cool. And we asked her to teach a class in anthropology. And she went ahead and did. And it's very odd because I'm a very indecisive person around many, many things. But when I took that anthropology class, I completely fell in love. And I pretty much knew that that is what I wanted to do. And I think what I liked about it was that it gave me kind of the tools and the language to understand that certain aspects of my environment and society, let's say around uh, gender expectations that I just thought were given. This, this is how the world was. All of a sudden I was like, oh, wait, there's other ways of being. It just was so liberating to me. And in fact, it was so liberating that I decided not to even go to college. When I was done with high school, I ended up meeting some people who were part of a collective and who lived on a boat. Um, and I met them in, in San Juan uh, in Puerto Rico where I lived and I decided to join them actually. And on this um, research vessel, research vessel Heraclitus, we did some environmental research. We did theater. My commitments to anthropology only um, became more intense because a lot of the people who lived on this ship were from different parts of the world. And we, we did, you know, there were some big disagreements that I don't think were personal. I, I do think they were cultural. So when I eventually left um, and ended up at Columbia, I didn't study anthropology, but that's because the department at Columbia was a mess. But I took a lot of anthropology classes and did religious studies. And I continued to just um, really be committed to the field and then ended up applying to grad school. So that's kind of the, the short version as to how I got interested in anthropology. And because anthropology didn't strike as something that I could do too much outside of the academy, I decided to apply it to grad school. Fascinating. So, so you're at Columbia, you are majoring in religious studies, uh, but thinking about anthropology in grad school, how did you choose your graduate program? So I was interested actually in medical anthropology. And so I had applied to places that had medical anthropologists. And 
I was actually originally before I turned to hackers, I was going to be working in, in Guyana, South America on religious healing and a particular very syncretic Indo-Guyanese church that also had Afro-Christian elements, <laughs> very different from what I ended up doing. And I basically, yeah, I think I applied to eight programs, um, all that had a sort of medical anthropology presence. I got rejected, I believe, by four. I got into four and I got funding at two. So in the end, it was those two. I believe it was Chicago and Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And there had been, I had actually, I think, really wanted to go to McGill, which it's ironic. I ended up teaching there because there was a great med anthro program, but they didn't really have funding. So, you know, Chicago, I knew was such an excellent anthropology program and they had funding. So in some ways, the choice was very easy. I ended up going to Chicago and uh, really loved the program and um, but I, I eventually strayed away from my original project and ended up doing something that was quite unconventional at the time. What's the story behind that? Yeah. What's the story of that switch? Yeah, there is a story. Um, there's kind of, I think, two layers to the story. So one layer was, you know, my interest in, in med anthropology had a very political component. I guess I've always been very interested in activism and politics. And one of the issues I followed quite closely concerned patents and HIV medication. And I was really mortified that basically patents um, were being wielded as a weapon so that People in Brazil, South Africa could not afford to purchase life-saving medicine. And so I was just um, involved in some groups that were fighting that. And I had some friends in college, this was on college, that knew of my interest. And some of them were hackers and programmers who were part of the open source movement, who at, at the time it was called just free software movement. And they kind of clued me into these alternative licenses that these hackers had created. And they had created them because these hackers also question copyrights and patents and believe that information should be liberated. And I was just really taken aback by that. I was, first of all, just um, hopeful that groups of people could see the problems with pat uh, patents and copyrights, right? So I just started to follow free software on the side as a hobby. And I never really intended to make that the topic of my dissertation. Um, but when I went to grad school, a couple of years in, I actually ended up getting quite sick and spent a year almost homebound. And during that year, I spent so much time on the internet and I was learning more and more about free software. It was a period where free software also became open source and there was a lot of debates about um, 
the differences between these two and, and, you know, pragmatically, they're quite similar, but ideologically, they emphasize different things. Free software emphasize, you know, the liberty behind information. Open source tended to emphasize the pragmatic aspects of the movement. And so I just found myself more and more intrigued. And by the time I sort of got better and could engage back with with classes and moving forward in my program, I was like, you know, this this is what I want to do. This is where my heart is. This is what I'm excited about. There's so little um, attention being given to this world that I I found, you know, fascinating. And so I went to my advisor and proposed that I switch my topic. And she wasn't supportive um, of it, not for a bad reason. She was just concerned that I wouldn't end up getting a job in anthropology because it was so area studies focused and my project wasn't configured around an area. And so, you know, being that I trusted my advisor, I listened to her and I was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to do this. And then I had um, coffee with a friend and... Um, She's Irish and the Irish accent really very moving to me and poetic. And, and she was just like telling me, no, if this is really what you want to do, you have to go back to your advisor, explain why this is important. And, and I was compelled by her argument and her accent. And I went back to my advisor and I was like, no, no, this is really what I, I want to do. And she's like, okay, this is, she, she thought it was a great topic too. She supported me. She's just like, you know, you're going to have to maybe be okay with not getting a job in anthropology. I was like, okay, I'm fine. I'm fine. And she was right. I, I only ended up getting a job in anthropology many, 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 like, you know, two decades after. Um, but it was a great move for my career and it's what I wanted to do. So that's how that happened. Fascinating story, and it's a story where there are details from anthropology to STS to media studies, uh, right? So, um, and also into hacking, because initially your dissertation was not fully into, right? Um, it was more into, as you said, free and open source software then. So, so I want to know all about these terms. So you are finishing your dissertation. Um, you know, it's the mid uh, uh, point of the first decade of this century. How was going on the market for you? <laughs> uh, so initially, I applied for one postdoc because Michael Warner, who's a scholar of English, who, among other things, wrote about publics and counterpublics. He came to visit University of Chicago and I came across his work and I loved it. And then he was at Rutgers University and part of a center, the Center for Cultural Analysis that had a theme for the year, which was intellectual property. And my first project and dissertation was all about how these free software developers and hackers you know, questioned intellectual property law through free speech law. And so it was kind of conceived as, um, I, I kind of framed the arguments about 
free software in terms of tensions in liberalism. And I basically applied for that single postdoc because that's all I could do because I was trying to finish my dissertation. And I ended up getting it. And I I'll never forget the day. It was like February something, February something in 2005. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm only halfway done with my dissertation. And I have to defend, I think by the end of May. Um, so all I did from that day was like write every single day until about a week before my defense, because uh, we were allowed to turn in the dissertation not formatted. But I did manage to finish. And actually, I felt like I got really good work done in that period. Like it was, I almost got into this unbelievable zone. And so I ended up going for this postdoc, and that was really great. It was in New Jersey. And that fall, I went on the job market. And it was really hard. <laughs> I think I applied to 50 positions, postdocs, jobs, and I cast my net wide. Anthropology, uh, STS, media studies were the three big areas. And I ended up getting, I think, four interviews uh, for jobs, and I didn't get any of them. But I did get a postdoc at University of Alberta in Canada. And then I had, and it was a great two-year postdoc, no teaching. I was quite excited about it. And then like three months before I was supposed to go or two months, NYU, where I had interviewed, called me and they're like, well, the person we had chosen for the position, they decided not to come, were interested in you. I was like, sweet. And so um, I kind of get re-interviewed by the dean and eventually I got offered that position as well, but I took a year of the postdoc and then ended up there. So that's how that panned out. And, and NYU is media, culture, and communication. And I mean, I think the lesson for that is, you know, sometimes you're not the top candidate, but you're still very much a competitive candidate, right? And if the first candidate doesn't work out, right, um, being number two is great <laughs> and is always a possibility. So that's how that worked out. Fascinating. Now, your intellectual profile is very cosmopolitan, I should say. I mean, you have, you know, the training in anthropology, you have the engagement with the SMTS literature, the engagement with media studies, and the undercurrent of political theory and social movement work. So practically speaking, for all of these positions, which were very diverse, was it always the same professional you, or did you craft different professional identities per field? That's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think my anchor point in ballast has always been ethnographic in terms of how I learn what I learn. I have always been open and compelled by different literatures. And I think even when I was in Chicago, that was encouraged. And I think that's a good thing, right? 
because while having an anchor point, I think is very grounding and very important. Every dis discipline is limited, right? Because every phenomena is complex enough that it can be treated through different angles and vantage points. And, you know, you're not necessarily going to be able to bring in all those vantage points and angles, but I think it can be very enriching to do that. And so I think from early on, I did find it very exciting sometimes to read some political theory on liberalism um, and apply it to an ethnographic context. Or the history of science has repeatedly been a source of inspiration for my own work. Um, and not just inspiration, but like there were certain dynamics at play in early modern science that helped me understand different dimensions of hacking, right? And so if I didn't read those literatures, I'd be kind of missing a lot. And so I'm still very committed to that. I feel like I have less time to do that amazing exploratory work um, that I was able to do so much as a grad student and postdoc and assistant professor. Um, I do think though, in terms of maybe different personas, I did eventually learn how to and became a bit more committed to uh, different genres of writing. And so it's not always easy to switch between them. And there are tensions as well, because sometimes um, it's really great to write in such a way that you can really reach much wider audiences. But you do sometimes have to sacrifice certain types of arguments or details, right, in doing that. And so um, I'm still committed to kind of moving uh, or, or using different genres of writing at different moments. Right. And that did come much, much later, I think. Um, so I think that's that's one element in terms of kind of different. Um, yeah, different academic personas more through the writing than anything else. And not only through writing, but also in multimedia. Right. You've recently worked with the BBC. Right. Yep. The podcast series on hacking. Right. No, nope, that's that's right. And that was really great. Yeah, and that was really you... oh go ahead. Yes, could could you share with the audience how was that experience? How did it come about? What did you learn from it? Right. So a really wonderful producer um from the BBC reached out to me. She actually, I think, really was intrigued by Hat Curio, which is this uh video museum portal where there's short clips about hacking and small little entries written about them, which is something I also launched with a couple of people a few years ago. And it was a way to also reach various publics um, through video material and accessible writing, a way to preserve and archive history as well, which I'm increasingly interested in. And so she saw that and was interested in it and she kind of reached out to me. And eventually she was able to kind of convince her producers that um, 
they should do a little series on hackers. And so we worked very closely together to kind of come up with different episodes and then find the people to interview um, and then take those interviews and script them. And I'll absolutely say that, I mean, I learned a ton from her. I couldn't have done it without her. And generally it was wonderful and you can capture, you can actually capture a lot of nuance in a very small space. There was 15 minutes. I do think that there were some moments where it was just a little hard because I knew that you had to simplify a little bit, right? But but generally, you know, it's about trying to find the one or two points you're trying to convey in those 15 minutes, right? And then sticking to that and then having very compelling writing to weave together the interview segments. Um and I think also one aspect about this, and I think it connects to your current project with what you're doing with this, is that you get to work with others, right? And that is, I think, much more satisfying in certain ways. I mean, I still like to do my individual work in writing, but there's something about working with others that I think is often much more productive and exciting, right? And so part of the Hack Curio project or part of the podcast is precisely about trying to work with others to create something wonderful. And working with others is great because, you know, there's just like a constant peer review going on um, in that process, right? So, um, yeah. Um, I'm, and I'm happy that exists too, because again, it's like, there's just a lot of um, untold stories or histories, some of which are, well, well, there's some histories and stories that are well-known and that are featured in the podcast, like of the um, hacker Aaron Schwartz. And then there's other histories, like the ones around the French government trying to infiltrate the hacker underground that are not well-known, right? And so it's just really, really nice to both commemorate some well-known histories just because they should be commemorated and then bring to light others that are a little bit more obscure as well. Excellent. That, since you mentioned Aaron Swartz, you were one of the people featured in the documentary, The Internet's Envoy, um, about his life and very unfortunate and untimely uh, passing. Um, how was your experience being on the other side of the camera? I mean, you've written eloquently about your experience as a source for journalists or talking to journalists, um, but this is somewhat different and very few of us get to be on the other side of the camera, in particular with, you know, in a documentary that was very, very um, widespread in terms of its diffusion and that had significant impact um, in the community. So how was your experience and what was the aftermath in terms of the conversations that that, you know, generated for you? So I knew the filmmaker Brian Knappenberger pretty well because he had also done um, a documentary on Anonymous. And I worked with him really, really closely on that. And um, 
And so it was just a nice transition because he's a wonderful filmmaker, um, as many documentarians are. And in, in this case, it was just really great to work with someone who was really dedicated to a topic and, you know, wanted to tell a full and rich story. And, um, you know, I, in the ways I could, just helped put him in touch with people, but he also knew a lot of people, right? Um, and in some ways, it was a really, really positive experience. I, I will say I have worked sometimes with journalists, some journalists and some filmmakers that it wasn't so positive necessarily. Um, and so I think that it does matter who's writing the piece or producing the podcast or making the film. And, and, you know, generally I have tons of respect for journalists of different kinds. They're just doing really, really important work. And I do what I can to try to support that. Right. And I think that experts of different kinds do need to create very good avenues of communication with journalists, because I think our work is very, very complementary. We do do different work and we have very different starting points sometimes, especially if you're an academic that doesn't necessarily fully buy into neutrality and objectivity, right? So in general, it, it just was a very, very positive and important experience. Um, and I remember it was, I remember when um, the idea of the movie came up, we were actually going to Aaron Schwartz's memorial service in New York City. Um, and I was like, you know, maybe you should make a movie about Aaron. And um, the memorial service was so incredibly moving, right? It was completely clear at the end of it that that's what he was gonna do. And again, you know, it's it's one of these things where, as as we all know, um, something that is so well known even among a community can be easily forgotten, right? And so, being able to do the work that he did with that documentary, I think, is so important, right? Which is why. The work of writing books is so important. Why doing this series is so important. Why something like Cat Curio is so important um, is this stuff gets really easily lost. And um, we have the capabilities and capacities today because of digital media and technologies to very easily create things, right? And so I think it used to just be filmmakers that did this and we can contribute to that, but then we can also go beyond beyond that, which is quite nice. Excellent. So, so I'm going to switch the frame for a minute and not. So you're talking as an anthropologist, your relationship to media in general, right? The media practitioners, media practice, media objects. Um, I'm going to go back in time. You land at NYU, having been trained in anthropology, having spent some time um, in sort of more sort of political theory, cultural theory kinds of circles, then SDS, and then you land in media studies land, right? Um, a 
not the sort of standard media studies department, but the media studies department nonetheless, right? Uh, has a very particular place in the field. And then from there, you go to McGill, where you land in media studies slash art history land, because that department is a combination of both, right? Right. What is what is this anthropologist's observations about sort of enculturating herself in, in media studies, you know, inhabiting that field um, and, and leaving that professional identity? So one of the things I love about media and com is there is a kind of capaciousness in the field. Um, and elasticity, and um, you know, it just allows for a lot of generativity and productivity. I think one of the things that over time frustrated me a little bit, especially coming from anthropological training that really emphasize historical thinking. And then being in two departments where there were a lot of media comm scholars that were very historically minded. So like Lisa Gittleman at NYU or Jonathan Stern at, um, at McGill, I did and do find that there is a lack of sort of historical thinking in a lot of scholarship in comm and media. And I think that certainly started to frustrate me at times. Um, so much so that the current book um, writing, which is a book of essays, um, many of them which have a pretty deep historical dimension to them. The book of essays, either in the introduction or the conclusion is gonna be reflecting on the importance of really injecting a strong commitment to historical thinking in media studies and calm. And of course there are many people who do that and there's also media history, but when you compare I, something like anthropology, which, you know, is not history and not everyone does history in anthropology, but there is always an expectation that you are very, very, very familiar with the history of whatever you're studying. And then also I think because in anthropology, you end up sort of working on one or two similar areas for a very long time. Anthropologists often tend to then do sort of what I think of as micro historical recursive work, where you work on a topic and then 15 years later, you kind of return to your topic in the earlier era to reconsider it, right? And I think in media studies, especially when it concerns technologies where there's a lot of change, I think, first of all, there's just, limits to what we could say in the present. And that's just inherent to studying the present. There are certain things we can say and there are certain things we cannot say until enough time has passed. And so I really think that 
um, as a field, media and com would benefit from centralizing historical thinking, um, which would then encourage practitioners to both think through their topic historically, but then also return to their very material, you know, 10 years later to reflect on things anew with the passage of time. And so I'm writing about this in my new book because I think that um, it's just something that I came to realize only after a while, both in terms of some of my frustrations in the field of comm and media, but also it became clear to me with my work, especially around anonymous and a few other topics that I wrote so much about them, but then it's been so productive to let five, seven years pass and then return to them um, that I could see new things that I couldn't see before. And then a kind of related issue concerns the importance of media and comm scholars who, who work on the internet to archive material as well as we um, do our work. And so one of the projects that I hope to launch maybe next fall is what I'm calling a kind of um, hacker history archive, where I start to collect a lot of material that exists digitally, some existing non-digitally, but a lot digitally that may not be here in three to four years or five years or 10 years, right? And so taking that material and collating it and categorizing it so that future researchers have that material to work with uh, because I'm concerned it it will disappear and some of it has already disappeared. Fascinating. And now sort of on the issue of memory and history, which are related, right? And archiving as a practice. After a very long or not, but I mean, you know, almost 20 years, long or not depends on subjective experience, but after almost 20 years, of um, leaving the home, uh, you have returned to anthropology. <laughs> Different department, but same field. How is it to go back home? And is the home the same home that it was before? So intellectually and professionally speaking, how, how was the decision and how has the practice been so far? So part of the decision had to do with definitely wanting to work with students doing ethnographic work um, in both departments at McGill and NYU. Fantastic students, fantastic departments. I really, I don't think ever had a student doing kind of really deep ethnographic work. There was a little bit of ethnography here and there for sure. Um, and so I think part of the appeal of returning was to be working with students doing that type of work, right? Um, and so this is my first year. So I'm starting to work with students and I'm definitely enjoying that. Um, otherwise, you know, it's it's interesting being here in particular at Harvard because on the one hand, um, there is like no media comm. 
as and we've talked about this Pablo how like the Ivy Leagues kind of are allergic to that which is interesting and weird and bizarre and will hopefully change <laughs> um but because of the Berkman Center um which has so many amazing scholars passing through especially as fellows from across the social sciences, law, and computer science, that there is such a kind of rich community of people working on the topical issues I work on. And then again, I get to be in an anthro department where you're kind of asking very different sets of questions sometimes, right? And there are, I think increasingly, and this is what's different from before, there are increasingly students who are primarily working around questions of the digital, right? So I have one student um, who hopes to do her field work in South Korea, that's where she's from. And she wants to work with what's called digital morticians. And these are people that you can hire to help erase you know, your digital footprints online that you may no longer want to have or, or never consented to have online, right? And it's a very, very rich project. Some aspects that are very classically like media comm studies, but then other aspects around like personhood that she's bringing to the table. She's mobilizing very traditional anthropological literature um, that I think would not be very common in a media comm department. And so I'm, I'm super excited to be able to work with students mobilizing this literature and me myself I'm excited to kind of return to it because as you know a lot of our reading is tied to a lot of our teaching right and so in certain respects I certainly taught on the anthropology of media and digital media but there wasn't as much room to kind of work and teach on some of kind of core anthropological texts that don't necessarily have to do with digital media and so I'm really looking forward to teaching that stuff again. And in fact, next semester, one of the classes I'm teaching is the undergrad sort of theory class, which is my way of getting back into anthropological theory. Um, and so I think I think I'll, I'll change my work in certain ways, right? Because I'll be coming across it much more in my teaching and my students. But yeah, it's wonderful to be in a place where I could do that anthropology, but then have access and exposure to such great scholarship around the internet happening at the Berkman Center as well. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. So, so my friend, we've covered many rich and interesting sort of facets of your you know, broad career. Um, thinking about all of them, if, if you had magical powers and could be granted one which about how you would like the study of media, communication, culture, technology to change. What would you wish for? I think it, um, yeah, I think the one element that is ripe for change has to do with really injecting a little bit more of this historical sensibility that I raised earlier 
and again, you know, a lot of people do do this. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's a uniform slash expected part of the discipline. It's in fact really presentist and sometimes even future oriented. And this has to do in part with funding and grants and the sort of money that you can get to do research. So everyone kind of understandably jumps on certain bandwagons, right? AI to take, you know, a recent one. And I think that that inclination kind of puts people into or backs people into a, a corner sometimes and that expanding the view in time and place can be very productive, right? So I think injecting a sort of historical sensibility as a sort of default to not every piece that people write in every project, but being a kind of recurring touchstone is really important. And, you know, one only has to go as far as media history. I mean, media history is such a rich and important field, right? Um, and there's great media historians. And it'd be just wonderful if more scholars on the internet were constantly interfacing with media historical work and also methods in their own work. So I think that's the one thing I'd, I'd probably want to change. All right. Thank you very much, Bella, for sharing your thoughts and experiences uh, with us. Thank you uh, to all the listeners for staying with us uh, to the end. And I invite everybody to join the next episode of El Café Latinx. Once again, thank you very much. My pleasure. And thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.